Well, good evening, and welcome to Calvary Chapel. This evening, we continue in our series of studies in First Chronicles. And in First Chronicles, in chapter 4, in verse 24, where we left off, we've been looking at the descendants of Jacob, otherwise known as Israel. And as we've been looking at his descendants, we're not reading through all these lists of names, but we are sort of just summarizing certain sections. As we look at these tribes and their descendants, there are several historical accounts buried within the list of names. And uh, I would like to just kind of summarize, move through them quickly, but I wouldn't want to miss out on some of the lessons in God's Word, which is why I took the time to read through every name and all of that that's listed here. Uh, so that first of all, if you'd like to, you certainly can, but that you'll, you can rest assured knowing you haven't missed anything other than, perhaps, me mispronouncing a bunch of names that uh, you would forget and I would forget how to pronounce. So anyway, this evening we are going to open in a word of prayer and get right into God's word. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that as we approach your throne in prayer and with an open heart, willing and ready to receive what you have for us, that you would make the scripture come to life. And even scriptures that may seem to be empty of any practical lesson, may you show us this evening that that is not true. Every word, every word, every sentence, every paragraph in your word has value in some way, shape, or form. And these lists of names themselves, while they mean very little to us, meant everything to the people who were descended from these different tribal leaders. How it certified and justified who they were and entitled them to property rights. We would all be upset if our title to our home got lost, but many times that was the case here. It empowered them and entitled them to be able to receive your blessings. May we this evening receive your many blessings, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, picking it up in chapter 4 and in verse 24, we're going to look at the descendants of Simeon. Last week we looked at the descendants of Judah. What we see here in just verses 24 through 27 is that the tribe of Simeon was, in fact, the smallest of the tribes of Israel, had 22,200 men, very small by comparison to some of the other tribes. Uh, We learn about that in Numbers 26. And uh, so we we find that out as we look at the first few verses there. Uh, They tell us that uh, there were few descendants, and as a result, there were less than some of the other tribes. Now, when we get into verse 28, the list of the towns of Simeon are there. The towns of Simeon were, interestingly enough, completely contained within the inheritance of the tribe of Judah. If you've ever looked at a map, certain towns are pretty much surrounded by other towns. Immediately, what immediately comes to mind is the town of Metuchen, which is essentially like the inside of a donut, and Edison sort of surrounds it if you look at it on a map. Actually, Passaic is similar, except we border the, the uh, Passaic River, but Clifton sort of encompasses like a horseshoe all the way around Passaic. And so that sometimes happens. That was the case with the towns of Simeon, the the tribal land or inheritance of the uh, Simeonites. They they were within the tribe of Judah. Uh, They were also scattered in Israel, the result of Simeon's indiscretion. Now, Simeon and Levi got it into their minds going back to when they were not... uh, in control of the promised land. This was long before that. And as they were there, 
there was an incident that took place with their sister Dinah, and these guys decided to, to play a really cruel and mean trick. What they did was they, uh, this, this one inter- individual uh, wanted to, I guess it was Shechem, they, they wanted to uh, have Dinah marry into their family, and so they said, oh yeah, sure, let's do this, and Jacob said, okay, everybody said, okay, but then Levi and Simeon got it in their minds to say, well, you know, the only thing is you guys all have to be circumcised. So they were, and as they were, how can I say this, indisposed, they were not able to fight, then they went in and they killed them all. And so that indiscretion, that behavior caused a problem for the tribe of Simeon. And so their indiscretion there, uh, which is recorded in Genesis 34, uh, really brought about uh, a curse, if you will, on this tribe. And uh, Jacob mentions that when he prays on his deathbed in Genesis 49, verses 5 through 7. Th- that was really never forgiven. That was a really, really awful thing they did. And uh, it really stained their reputation, the Simeonites. And so, as a people, they were not as blessed as some of the other tribes. They later moved to Manasseh and Ephraim in the north to become the 10th northern tribe uh, when the kingdom split. So, uh, this tribe sort of disappeared with, with very little to say about it, to be honest. Not, not too many great leaders or great individuals came from the tribe of Simeon. Uh, but the leaders of the clans of Simeon are mentioned in verses 34 through 38. And then the land occupied by the Simeonites is mentioned in verses 38 through 43. And I want to read this because I found this interesting. In the second part of verse 38, it says, Their families increased greatly. And they went to the outskirts of Gedor, to the east of the valley, in search of pasture for their flocks. And they found rich, good pasture, and the land was spacious, peaceful, and quiet. Some Hamites, that is, descendants of Ham, had lived there formerly. Well, the men whose names were listed came in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and they attacked the Hamites in their dwellings, and also the Meunites, who were there, and completely destroyed them. That sound a little familiar? after I shared that uh, indiscretion. And um, these were kind of sneaky guys. So anyway, they attacked the Hamites and completely destroyed them, as is evident to this day. Then they settled in their place because there was pasture for their flocks. And then we read of another account, and 500 of these Simeonites, led by, and the individuals are mentioned there, who were sons of Ishi, invaded the hill country of Seir, which is a different part of the area. And they killed the remaining Amalekites who had escaped, and they have lived there to this day. So we get a little bit of history about the Simeonites. They were sort of contained within the tribe of Judah. Then the kingdom splits, and they sort of move out of that land, at least some of them do, and they move north to be with the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim, who are the leading tribes in the northern kingdom. And there are these incidents recorded for us of how they got even more land. Now, I'll remind you that they were encouraged to attack those people living in the land and take that land, for God had given it to them. And we forget that sometimes. Didn't mean they had to be cruel, but they did have to win the battles. And they weren't to make any alliances with these people. You can say this about the Simeonites. They, they weren't the, the people of integrity that maybe some of the other tribes were. But they didn't have a problem going to war. They didn't have a problem attacking certain areas and taking the land. In fact, there were these pasture lands that were sort of on the outskirts of their area. They were searching for pasture, and they found it there. And all of this took place, we're told, during the reign of Hezekiah, king of Judah, which is about 728 through 686 B.C. So they attacked these people, and they took their pasture. 
Now, one of the things that God criticized the Israelites for under Joshua, uh, and then later, even during the time of the judges, was that they didn't always go in and take all that God had given them. These other peoples did not belong there. God had given the land to the Israelites and commanded them to take them out. And for many, many hundreds of years, some of these lands were occupied. It wasn't until the time of David that they took Jerusalem, which was the city of the Jebusites. There were areas like the area of the Philistines, which was occupied pretty much all throughout Israel's history until you get to the times of David and Solomon where they were put under tribute. Uh, You have these areas that are mentioned here. And you have to at least credit the Simeonites in this, that they actually did do what God had told them to do in some of these ways. Uh, They also attacked the hill country of Seir, which was in Edom. Now, the interesting thing about this is that was not land that was given to them. So they also had no problem taking land that didn't belong to them. So they sometimes took land that they should have, and they sometimes took land that they shouldn't have. At the end of the day, you can see that they really pretty much were self-seeking. They did what was best for them. And doesn't that just describe a certain type of person in our world today? I mean, there were 500 of these Simeonites. They were led by four of their leaders. They invade the land of Edom, and they kill, but notice who they kill, the surviving Amalekites, and they take their country. Now, do you remember who the Amalekites were? They were a people that you'll remember Saul was told to completely annihilate. He didn't, as it turns out. One of them took him out. And, of course, the Amalekites continued to exist in some degree in small numbers throughout their history until they were in Persia. And we've talked about this before. When Haman, a descendant of the Amalekites, brought about or tried to bring about the genocide of the Jews. So you see what happens when you don't do what God tells you to do? See, this I can say about the Simeonites. Sometimes they did what they were supposed to do. And sometimes they did what they weren't supposed to do. But one thing we do see here is they had no problem stepping up and doing things that other people may not have done because they were, they were cowards. These guys were not cowards. They were brave. They, they insisted on going out there and doing what God had called them to do. So as I say that, remember that there are things that need to be dealt with in this world. The Amalekites were a people that needed to be dealt with. And you might be thinking, if you're not familiar with this history, oh, well, that doesn't seem loving. I mean, how many times I hear people say, well, you know, I don't really believe the Bible because in the Old Testament, God commanded his people to wipe out whole groups of people. We think, oh, that's horrible. How can we say we have a loving God? That's not true. Listen, the Amalekites were human traffickers. They were terrorists. They would actually wait as Israel was traveling through the wilderness and and they would pick off the young and the, the women and the children. They would grab them and they'd sell them into slavery. So if I were to say to you, the Lord has commanded us to attack and destroy the terrorists, would anybody say, oh, God isn't loving? Or, or, or let's say child predators or human traffickers? Of course you wouldn't, but see, you don't know that, so you just assume, oh, the poor Amalekites. No, not the poor Amalekites. God wanted them destroyed for a reason. And the Simeons, at least that you could say, they destroyed those surviving Amalekites that were living there. But they also took land that didn't belong to them. So nobody's perfect obviously. Okay, so that pretty much summarizes what First Chronicles says about Simeon's descendants. Now we talk about Reuben's descendants. Now tonight's studies are, are these little vignettes, these little moments, really point out the frailty of man and the foolishness of mankind and the sinfulness of mankind. God still works through these things, but we see oftentimes that there are moments where the Word of God reveals 
just how sinful man can be. And yet they were God's chosen people. So let's look at the uh, descendants of Reuben. Now, I want to look at these first two verses in chapter 5. It says that the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was the firstborn in parentheses, but when he defiled his father's marriage bed, his rights as firstborn were given to the sons of Joseph, who I've mentioned already, which were Manasseh and Ephraim. They, uh, and so he could not be listed in the genealogical record in accordance with his birthright. And though Judah was the strongest of his brothers and a ruler came from him, the rights of the firstborn belonged to Joseph. And then it goes on to mention the sons of Reuben and it lists their names. Now what we're learning here, and you may not be familiar with this, and this is sort of a snapshot of different events that took place in the tribes of Israel, and it's interesting that they're not forgotten. They weren't forgotten by Jacob and they're not forgotten by God. Reuben was Israel's firstborn son, but his rights as the firstborn were given to other sons or the descendants of Joseph. Because Reuben slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah. Jacob had two wives and two concubines, essentially two wives and two lesser wives, right? And all of the sons of Israel and all of his children were born of these four women. Well, he didn't sleep with his own mother. He slept with the mother of his half-siblings, if you will, Bilhah. And this was considered a great dishonor to Israel, uh, that is Jacob, great dishonor, obviously. And what Jacob did is he took away his birthright as the firstborn son. He lost everything. For what? He lost everything for what? For what? For sin. And you know that he and his descendants were cursed by Jacob on his deathbed in Genesis 49, verses 3 through 4. They were cursed. Uh, That's not something that a father is going to easily forgive, right? So think about it. For what? What did he give up his birthright for? We've seen this before with with Jacob and Esau. Esau gave up his birthright for what? uh, A meal? Uh, This guy, he he gave up his birthright and, and his honor and everything else, his reputation for what exactly? For sex. And when you think about it, there are so many people in this world that give up so much for that. I mean... I don't want to really get into it too much other than to say there are people that destroy their lives for a good time, if you want to call it that. I've seen it. You've seen it. We've seen it. How many marriages are destroyed? Families are destroyed. Lives destroyed. For what? For what exactly? For, for, for a good time? For, for sex? You know, the world is telling everyone out there that... that You know, if you're not having sex, you're missing out on everything. Now, of course, that is a blessing from God within marriage. And we acknowledge that, and we thank God for it. It is a blessing. But to try to get involved in a sexual relationship outside of marriage just for pleasure is sin. It is sin. It will destroy you because sin destroys us. Why does God hate sin? Because it hurts us. So people don't usually like to hear this, because I remember growing up, and I'm going to be frank about this, I remember as a, as a young person, under the age of 10, knowing that, you know, you did, that was wrong. You weren't supposed to do that until you got married, right? And then what happened is people did, but they pretended they didn't. People did that, but they kind of, if anyone asked them, they'd lie, and they did what they did in secret. And then I remembered as I got a little bit older, I became a teenager and a young adult, People were moving out of their homes and moving in together. And it was sort of like there was no shame. 
It was unabashed. There, there, there was no sense that it was wrong anymore. And I lived through a time period of within 20 years where we went from, yes, people sinned, but they did it quietly and in secret because there was shame, to flagrantly, outwardly just living in sin. And another thing to think about, and, and I'm not here to condemn anybody. I'm just, I'm just saying that this is the real result of a society that's going down the tubes. Uh, it's amazing to me because t- today it's gotten to the point now where people have families and, and they're not married, and that's accepted. And again, I'm not judging anybody. I'm just telling you, when I was growing up, that was like a, no way. That was a huge, uh, shameful thing. And now it's like accepted. I hear these stories, of, especially in Hollywood, these people get married, and then you read the thing, they finally get married or they've been living together for 30 years, and oh, they share children. Interesting, Right. I know in Scandinavia in particular, uh, I, I, I learned that people don't even bother getting married. What's the point? And so as we look at this, realize that a lot of people are ruining their lives because they're defying God's word. They want to be blessed. They want to have the blessings of marriage in a family. And those are blessings. But you got to do it God's way. So what Reuben did here was awful. But there are so many people that sacrifice so much for so little. And I think that's a warning, that's an encouragement, and certainly we learn that from Reuben. He is, and described by his father, as as unstable as water. And when a double-minded man does these things, the book of James tells us he's unstable in all his ways. So there's a lot of instability in our world today, right? Well, we start to get an understanding as to why. Okay. So we have the sons of Reuben mentioned there. Then we have the descendants of Joel in verses 4 through 10. Uh, there are the leaders of the clans of Reuben mentioned in verses 7 and 8. And then we look at the land that was occupied by the Reubenites. And I want to mention this, just verses 8 through 10. We learn there that um, they settled in the area, in the latter part of verse 8, they settled in the area of Aurora Nebo, or Tenebo and Balmeon, And to the east they occupied the land up to the edge of the desert that extends to the Euphrates River because their livestock had increased in Gilead. See, God had blessed them so much. They were were ranchers, basically. And they lived in in an area with plains. And so they they would have all these cattle. They had livestock, and they needed to to care for them. And so they need more pasture land. That's the problem. God is blessing them so much that they need more to feed their flocks. So that's what's going on here. So they have to solve that problem. And it says that they, um, during Saul's reign, they waged war against the Hagrites, who were defeated at their hands, and they occupied the dwellings of the Hagrites throughout the entire region east of Gilead. So that's interesting, because they were given land on the east side of the Jordan. It went up just so far into the desert. But they needed more, so they did what we've already talked about the Lord had commanded them to do. They, they ventured out, and they took that which had been given to them by the Lord, and stepped out and took more pasture land in faith. And they stepped out, they fought, and as a result, they received the blessing. Now, the, pla- the pasture land up to the edge of the desert extended to the Euphrates River. That, that's significantly far away. I mean, that's, that's in Iraq, okay, in modern-day Iraq. And they were in Israel. So you imagine they had to go all the way through Jordan, their nation, what is today Jordan, and make their way into Iraq and then all the way to the Euphrates River, which they did. They occupied land significantly to the east of the promised land because they were blessed, because their livestock had increased. And we're told that the land of the Hagrites, east of Gilead, became theirs. Uh, They waged war against them, defeated them, and occupied their lands. And we're also told when this took place, 
during the reign of King Saul of Israel, which is much earlier than the other events we talked about, in 1050 to 1010 BC. So a little bit of history, a little bit of, you might call these moments of triumph or failure within the tribes of Israel. And so these things are recorded in God's word. Sometimes they're not recorded anywhere else but the book of Chronicles. Okay, so now we get to another tribe, Gad, and each of these tribes are named after one of the sons of Jacob or Israel. And in the case of Gad's descendants, we're given in verses 11 and 16 and 18 through 22, we're given the land occupied by the Gadites, and uh, we're told that they had all of the pasture lands of the plain of Sharon, which we've heard of before. Uh, That's closer to the coast. Uh, they, They had a lot. They had a lot, and God blessed them. And we're told that they were in on this, with this issue that the, uh, the Reuben's, Reuben's descendants were involved in, this idea of taking more pasture land. So, for example, uh, back in our account here, just looking at verses 18 through 22, we're told that the Reubenites and the Gadites, so they were, they were in cahoots, they were together working on this, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, who, who we're going to just speak about in a few minutes, had 44,760 men ready for military service. It's a lot of guys. And they were able-bodied men who could handle the shield and the sword, who could use a bow, and who were trained for battle. And they waged war against the Hagrites, Jeter, Naphish, and Nodab, and they were helped in fighting them. And God handed the Hagrites and all their allies over to them because, look at this, they cried out to him during the battle. And he answered their prayers because they trusted in him. They seized the livestock of the Hagrites, 50,000 camels, 250,000 sheep, and 2,000 donkeys. They also took 100,000 people captive, and many others fell slain because the battle was God's, and they occupied the land until the exile. Now, this is a heroic moment for the Reubenites and the Gadites, and we talked a little bit about it already when we talked about uh, the the tribe of Reuben. But um, what what we learn here is that God was in this thing. Some of the things they did, God wasn't involved in, right? We talked about things that God had told them to do and told them things that he told them not to do. But I want to point out a couple of things, a couple of lessons, because we're not warriors, we're prayer warriors, but we're not going to go out there and start bashing in skulls and taking people's homes, okay? That's not who we are. It's not who God has called us to be. And as someone who studies martial arts, I study martial arts so I don't ever have to hurt anyone. But if I have to, I can subdue someone and protect myself. Now, as I look at this, as I realize this, I, I, I learned something about being prepared. First of all, being well-trained. That applies to whatever it is you do. Being well-trained, in this case, for battle. But being well-trained means preparing yourself. You know, there was a lot of them, almost 45,000 of them. And they waged war and they defeated them. But it says they did so with God's help. Now, there's a combination here of being prepared and crying out to God. Being prepared and crying out to God. There is a danger when we're facing obstacles, persecution, difficult times, challenging moments, of doing one of two things but not both. There are people who say, oh, we're crying out to God. We're just asking God to save us and deliver us. And that's fine. And that's great. But are you prepared? There's a time to be trained and prepared for what's going on. Oh, I really, you know, I I just want God to give me a job. Well, have you done anything to train or even try to find a job? No, I'm just, I'm believing by faith that I'm going to sit by the phone and somebody's going to call me and they're going to offer me a job. I've heard crazy Christians like that. 
And I think to myself, you just, you, 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 I'm sorry, but that's just, that's not how it works. That's not how life works. Now, I'm not saying it can't happen, but can I just tell you, unless God gives you a specific word, be prepared. Be prepared. Not to sound like the Lion King. Be prepared. Do everything you can do in those situations. Be responsible. Be well-trained. Be prepared. But don't depend on that either. Oh, I don't need God's help. I can do it on my own. God helps those that help themselves. That kind of mentality is the other extreme. Now, that's not true either. You, 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 listen, you can cry out to God. You can be prepared. But you've got to ask for God's help and his blessing. You can be extremely well prepared. But if you're not crying out to God, don't expect any blessing. You need to look to God to bless you and be prepared. It's a wonderful balance. And they were. We learned that they were. And it's very encouraging to see what can happen when we cry out for God's help. They cried out to God during the battle, and he answered their prayers. But they were well-trained and well-prepared. He answered their prayers because they trusted in him. They didn't trust in their own ability. They didn't trust in their training as much as they trusted in God. They, they didn't trust in their abilities or, or, or their preparedness They trusted in God, and they were prepared. So let me just say that is a wonderful balance of how to get through life. And they got through the battle, and they won. In fact, they seized the livestock, many camels, sheep, donkeys, captives, took people into servitude, slew many of them. Why? Because it was God's battle. And they occupied their land until they were taken into exile. That was many, many years later. In fact, They were taken into exile. Well, some of these tribes were taken into exile earlier than others. Like, that was probably about 722 B.C. But um, the interesting thing is, this, we're told, we learned from the previous section in chapter, uh, in this chapter, chapter 5, verse 10, that all of this took place during the reign of Saul, king of Israel, which was 1050 to 1020 B.C. So several hundred years of blessing came about because these men were prepared and they cried out to God and God blessed them. So I think that's a wonderful application and lesson for us to put into practice. And then in the rest of this, uh, verses 12 through 15, uh, and also in in verse 17 of this section in this chapter, in verse 5, we are told that all of these records, all of these, everything we're reading, all this was entered in the genealogical records during the reigns of Jotham, king of Israel, and Jeroboam, king of Israel. This was during the time uh, of these kings when it was recorded, but it actually took place during the time of Saul, and that we learned from the previous section. Okay, and by the way, that was uh, recorded shortly before they lost the land, and they lost the land because they stopped serving God. You want to be blessed? Continue to serve God. Trust in God. Amen? Okay, so that's Simeon's descendants, Reuben's descendants, Gad's descendants. We're just going to look at two more this evening. Uh, We're going to look at two sections, the half-tribe of Manasseh and Levi. Now, as we look at the half-tribe of Manasseh, this is one little section there I want to look at in detail. Uh, But this is, uh, we're introduced in verse 23 of chapter 5. We're told the people of the half-tribe of Manasseh were numerous. Now, unlike the Simeonites, these guys were blessed. They, they were the largest tribe. Uh, they, were, they settled in the land of Bashan to Baal-Hermon, and that is to Sinir and Mount Hermon. They were so big, they, they were already a half-tribe. Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So they're already a quote-unquote half-tribe. They're not a full tribe, because Joseph is the 
ancestor, right? That tribe, this tribe, was so great that they divided in half, some on the east of the Jordan, some on the west of, of Jordan. So think about it. You got a half tribe, and two quarters of the tribe were huge. So God blessed these guys and blessed them abundantly. They settled in the land east of Jordan, and they were the descendants of Mekir, the firstborn of Manasseh. So this one portion of the tribe settled there in the east. The rest of the Manasseh settled in the promised land west of the Jordan, as I've said, and uh, their descendants are listed there. Uh, the land occupied by the half-tribe of Manasseh is mentioned there in verse 23. The leaders are mentioned in verses 24 through 25. Uh, they were brave warriors, and uh, let's actually read that, verses 24 through 25. These were the heads of their families, and it mentions their names. Notice it says they were brave warriors, famous men, and heads of their families. But, notice, but they were unfaithful to the God of their fathers and prostituted themselves to the gods of the peoples of the land whom God had destroyed before them. So God, the God of Israel, stirred up the spirit of Pol, king of Assyria, that is Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, who took the Reubenites, Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh into exile. He took them to these other lands uh, and the river of Gozan where they are to this day. Now, in just what we've read about these tribes tonight, we learn the whole history. You put it all together, you get a summary of exactly what happened. They did great when they cried out to God. God blessed them. But then when they prostituted themselves to other gods, when they started to serve other gods, when they rejected God, then they lost their blessings. Are you with me? This is true for the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half of the tribe of Manasseh. See, you can be blessed by God. Are you blessed by God? Amen. And you can lose those blessings because of sin, and especially idolatry. And we sometimes think, well, I'm God's child, you know, I'm blessed by God, I don't have to worry, I'm not going to hell. Well, that may be true. But you can lose your blessings. You can lose, as we've said already, your family through sexual sin and other sin. You can lose so much for, for turning your back on God. We've just described in a few sections how they took some of these lands. But we've also now learned how they lost it. As I've said, in around 722 B.C., the king of Assyria came in and he took away everything and took them away. And they became what are sometimes called part of the ten lost tribes. But they weren't lost. God knew right where they were. They just were taken away from God's blessing. So what's the lesson? What's the moral of the story? Do not reject God. These guys were brave warriors. They were famous for their actions in battle. Like a Samson, maybe. But they were unfaithful to God. They worshipped the gods of the peoples that he destroyed. The very people that they fought against, they ended up doing the same thing that they did. And what do you think happened? The same thing happened. They were destroyed by someone else. This ultimately happened to all of Israel. When Babylon came in in 586 BC and took the southern kingdom away for 70 years. And so we're heading towards some of that. We're going to talk about those things as we study through First Chronicles. But it's a great lesson. The Reubenites, Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh were taken into exile by the king of Assyria... And it was God who raised up this pagan king against them. Now think about it. This happens to nations. It happens to individuals. And I, I think the only reason the United States still exists today is probably a good percentage, probably more than we realize, of people out there really love God. They're not perfect, but they love God. And as long as there's a, 
I don't think there's necessarily a majority, but there's certainly somewhere between 40 and 50% of the people in this nation. If you look at the whole nation, who, who at least love God and honor God. You know, they, they stand against the sins of our culture and, this, and the sins that are taking place in this nation. And what was it that God said to Abraham about Sodom? If there were how many righteous people, he would spare the city. Ten. Everybody's ready to write off the United States of America. I am not an idealist, but I know God will spare the city for ten righteous people. I look around, there's more than ten righteous here tonight. You know, I can't speak for everyone, but... I know, I look around, and I, I, think, <laughs> I, think that, I think that most of us here at least love God and are, are trying to be righteous in our, in our lifestyle. We're not perfect. I don't think we're, we're serving foreign gods, are we? We're not rejecting God's word, are we? There are lots of people out there that are, but we're not among them. So just take a deep breath and realize that God is faithful to his people. I really think that the culture will collapse when God returns and takes his church to himself. Because then there won't be any righteous people left, will there? Because they'll all be taken. And when that happens, oh yes, then I think the United States, or what's left of it, will surely be destroyed. Now, it may be destroyed before them. That's God's prerogative. We certainly deserve judgment as a culture. But don't forget, there are a lot of people out there praying for this nation, and we're among them. So I'm not trying to be the eternal optimist. I'm just making the point, okay? For 10 righteous, Sodom would have been destroyed. And we're pretty bad. We're probably just as bad as Sodom. I think the difference is that there are more righteous left in the city, okay? And he says to Lot that he will not judge the righteous with the wicked. Can I hear an amen? All right. You may be persecuted by the world. You may even be put to death by the world, but you'll never be judged by God. Not if you're in Christ. For he took upon himself the judgment for our sins. Let's not forget that. Amen? Let's not forget that. Okay. So they were still living in exile when Ezra compiled this book of Chronicles. Um, It's just sad. It's just sad that we could lose our blessings for rejecting God. Okay, now we get to Levi. And I only want to look at two sections up close. The rest of it we can kind of go over quickly. In verses uh, 1 and verse 16 of chapter 6, in First Chronicles. There's a long list of names there, but I just point those out because we're told that the sons of Levi were three. There were three of them, and then so the Levites were divided into three clans, if you will, three, three uh, third tribes, if you will, under Levi. There was Gershon, Koath, and Merari. And so many times, because this is written from a priestly perspective, we get a lot of information on different parts of the tribe of Levi, the descendants of Levi, and they're almost always categorized by one of these three portions of the tribe. And so you have uh, the sons of Koath, who were mentioned in verses 2 through 15, and also in verse 18. Uh, one of the things I want to mention is that Aaron, Moses, and Miriam are mentioned. They're the children of Amram. Uh, They were the descendants of Aaron uh, also uh, that are mentioned. And the descendants of Aaron, I just want to sort of comment on this. They're mentioned there. You'll remember Nadab and Abihu. Some of you guys probably remember that account from Leviticus chapter 10. They were the children or the sons of Levi, and they were consumed by the presence of the Lord because they offered strange fire on the altar. They were supposed to do things a certain way. They decided they want to get some of the glory, get involved there. You know, we're we're going to offer our own fire on the altar after God had already ignited the altar. And they were consumed by that fire. They were destroyed. And that fire consumed the offerings. It also consumed them. 
So Aaron was left with a couple other sons, uh, but all of the priests were descended from them, not from Nadab and Abihu. Now, there's also a man by the name of Phineas that's mentioned in verse 4. He was a, a, a big hero of the tribe of Levi. He put a man to death after witnessing his wickedness. It's recorded in Numbers 25. There were the uh, Moabite women who came into the camp. They were prostitutes. They tempted the men sexually. These men gave in to this uh, sexual temptation. And there was uh, one individual uh, who was flagrantly sinning out in the open in public. And Phineas put him to death, took a spear and stabbed the two people right while they were doing their thing. So it was, it's described for you. You can read it if you want the gory details. But uh, his actions of righteousness stopped the plague, but 24,000 Israelites died in that plague because of their wickedness with the Moabites. Uh, The Lord was pleased, it says, with his zeal and his honor for his God. So Phineas is a hero. He killed the man. We're told his name was Zimri, the son of Salu. He was a leader within the tribe of Simeon. Interesting. Here we are again. Some of those sins just keep coming back, don't they? And so we see what happened there. Okay, then we have uh, one man's mentioned, Jonathan. He served as the first high priest in Solomon's temple in verse 10. And then there's another guy mentioned, Jehozadak. He was the high priest when Judah was taken into exile uh, by Babylon. So some of these individuals are mentioned. There are a lot of names there. Most of them not all that important to us. Then we're told in verse 49, sort of jump ahead in in, uh, chapter 6. I'm kind of going through some of these sections just to point out the things that are really important. In verse 49, but Aaron and his descendants were the ones who presented offerings on the altar of burnt offering and on the altar of incense in connection with all that was done in the most holy place, making atonement for Israel in accordance with all that Moses, the servant of God, had commanded. So we're told there that it was the priests, the the priests were the descendants of Aaron, who did all of these things, who who presented those offerings, who who made atonement. And we talk about Yom Kippur, that's the day of atonement, the priests were the ones that performed all of the sacrifices. And so they're mentioned there. They presented offerings on what was the brazen altar. It was a a barbecue, essentially. They took the the meat of the animals and put it on this altar. Sometimes they'd have a consecration offering and everything was consumed. Sometimes they would have a sin offering. Uh, Sometimes they would have a love offering or a peace offering. And you would, uh, the sin offerings would, would not be completely consumed, but the meat would go to the priests. And then the peace offerings, you would take some of the meat home as well. So all of these offerings were performed by the priests, and we've mentioned that. And then one thing I do want to mention, the descendants of Moses and Miriam, who were the siblings of Aaron, are not included here. This is a priestly record. This is about the priests. And so that's why they're not mentioned. And so you have the sons of Gershon, you have the sons of Merari, the different descendants of Levi, When we get to verses 25 through 27, we have the descendants of Elkanah, the son of Asir, the descendant of Kohath. He has a descendant who's also named Elkanah, and you probably remember him. He was the son of Jehoram. He was, uh, his wife was Hannah, who you remember, the father, he was the father of Samuel. So you had Elkanah mentioned, this is in 1 Samuel chapter 1, Uh, he was the husband of Hannah, and Hannah and Elkanah had Samuel. And then we're told in verse 28 that Samuel had two sons, Joel and Abijah. And we learn from 1 Samuel chapter 8, guess what? 
Samuel was one of the most righteous people in the Bible, in all of God's history. He was easily in the top five, okay? We'll say that, other than Jesus. Jesus is in his own category, okay? But like, if you look at the people that serve God, think of people like Joseph and Daniel and Noah. Well, Samuel's up there. He has these two sons, and they are wicked. Joel and Abijah. And Samuel appointed his two sons to serve as Israel's judges, but they didn't follow his good example. They used their position for personal gain. They were wicked. And their wickedness brought about the people saying, we don't want them to be judges. Give us a king. And that's when Saul got in the picture, and we all know how that ended. Not well. So think about it. Here you got this great man, Samuel, has these two sons, and they are awful. They're train wrecks. And that happens sometimes too. And you can say, oh, maybe it's Samuel's fault. Maybe he didn't discipline his sons the way that Eli didn't discipline his sons. He was raised by Eli after all. Or maybe they were just wicked. I think I said this on Sunday. You know, parents can't be held accountable for their children rejecting the truth. I mean, you do what you can. You, you, you give them the truth. But at the end of the day, they have the same choice that you have to serve God or reject God. And they'll suffer the consequences if they reject God. And they'll be blessed if they receive Christ. Amen? So I pointed that out. Okay, then we get to the temple musicians. Not a whole lot I need to say about this, but they're mentioned in 31 through 48. David put these three men, Haman, Asaph, and Ethan, in charge of the music in the tabernacle and in the temple. We'll talk more about them. Uh, David moved the ark to the city of Jerusalem, and he placed the ark in the tent of meeting until Solomon built the temple there. And these men followed the regulations that he laid down for them. They were worship leaders, and their names are mentioned there, and they're listed for us. And then you have their genealogies. So in verses 33 through 38, you have the genealogy of Haman the musician, uh, who was also the grandson of Samuel, interestingly enough. So wait a minute, what does that mean? Well, that means that sometimes the kids are horrible, but the grandson, the grandchildren are great. (laughs) That happens too. So here you have a worship leader come from a guy who was wicked who came from Samuel the prophet. So, you know, everyone has to make their own choices for themselves. As it's been said, God doesn't have uh, grandchildren. He only has children. Everyone has to make those decisions. Then you have the genealogy of Asaph in verses 39 to 43, the genealogy of Ethan. We don't need to read all those names. And their fellow Levites performed other duties in the tabernacle and the temple. So you have the priests and the Levites serving God. And then in verses 54 through 81, you have where they lived, the settlements of the Levites. Again, I'm not going to read all of this, But what the Israelites did is they gave 48 towns because the Levites needed to be interdispersed among the tribes. They weren't given a tribal land. They had cities within the tribal land. And so the Israelites gave 48 towns, including pasturelands, to the Levites, and they gave it from their own inheritance, sort of like a tithe to the priests. The Lord had commanded them to give these towns to them. They would live in these towns, graze their livestock in the pasture land, and six of these towns were also designated cities of refuge, where someone could flee for justice. The towns would be taken from each of the tribes based on their size. So if God had blessed them with much, they were expected to give much. If God had blessed them a little, they were expected to give little. Does that sound like a principle that makes its way into the New Testament? You know, it's true. And when we talk about giving... You know, if you give a little, you can expect to be blessed a little. If you give a lot, you can be expect, expected to be blessed a lot. The towns would be taken from each of the tribes, and the towns were randomly distributed throughout the land as God commanded. 
And just to kind of tally it up, the descendants of Aaron were given 13 towns from the tribes of Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin. The Kohathites we talked about, these were the Levites, they were given 10 towns from Ephraim, Dan, and Manasseh. The Gershonites were given 13 towns from Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and Manasseh. And the Merorites were given 12 towns from Reuben, Gad, and Zebulun. So they received the blessings of God from their brothers. Now, I know a lot of those different accounts may, in and of themselves, may not seem like much, but it's painted a picture for us, a very important one, that essentially says this, follow God, obey God, serve God, and you'll be blessed. Reject God, and you won't be. You will forfeit the blessings that could be yours. And I I think it's so important. I think there's a scripture in Jonah that really sums it up. And, uh, I don't have my bookmark in there, so I'll just see if I can remember it. Those that forfeit, uh, those that give their hearts to idols, forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Let's not give our hearts to idols. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this evening, and we pray your continued blessing on each of us. May we make good decisions and be blessed for them. May we honor you by living according to your word. And when we fail to live according to your word, May we ask for forgiveness and receive it in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.